Welcome to Role-Playing History, the podcast where we explore the history of role-playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 92, Target Games. This week we'll take a look at the Swedish game company Target Games, as well as a deep dive on three of their best-known role-playing games. And I'll admit up front that my handle on pronunciations insofar as Swedish isn't the best, so... I'm going to blow a bunch of these, I'm sure. I will apologize probably when I do it, but I definitely want to apologize in advance. So with all of that, let's just crank up the tour bus and get to the topic. Target Games was founded in 1980 in Stockholm, Sweden by Frederick Malmberg, Lars Ark Thor, Johan Arve, Klaus Berndahl, and Roger Undhagen. The stated purpose of Target Games at its creation was to create and publish tabletop role-playing games for the European market as mainstream American tabletop games were slow to debut across the pond at that time. Now, for our younger listeners wondering how the hell that happens, you gotta remember that in 1980, we didn't have the internet, cell phones wouldn't be much of a thing for at least a decade, and cable television was just really starting to be a thing. So the fact that companies like TSR hadn't yet planted their flags in Europe, that was not a surprise, especially to those of us who grew up at that time and were gaming at that time. It was the way things were. Target handled the release of their tabletop role-playing games from 1980 through the mid-1990s by dropping them under the brand name Adventurespell, which, if my universal translator is correct, means adventure games. The early materials were stapled books, which weren't all that unusual in America at the time either, in what's known as the G5 format, which means they were 169 millimeters by 239 millimeters. For the Americans in the crowd, that's about 6.6 inches by 9.5 inches, because of course, we're like the only country on the planet that doesn't do frickin' metric. Anyway, those stapled books were served up in box sets that also included dice, which again was a fairly standard practice at the time. The first major release for the company was 1982's Drakkar och Demoner, which we'll cover in greater detail later in the show. The next major release was 1984's Mutant, and it spawned multiple versions, including 1989's Mutant, 1992's Mutant RYMD, and Mutant Chronicles. Again, we're covering Mutant a little later on in the show. Colt was dropped in 1991, and I really wanted to cover this game in long form. So, of course, it'll be the third of the three games from Target that we cover as the show goes on. Target wasn't done, though. They continued to produce games throughout the 80s and early 90s. Chalk dropped in 1985, and it's a Swedish translation of the game Chill. Sagan om Ringen came out in 1986, and it was a translation of Middle-Earth role-playing. 1988 brought another Swedish translation to the market, Shadornis Krieg, which was a translation of the West End Games version of the Star Wars role-playing game. In addition to the games I just mentioned, the company also released three generic source books over the years. 1987's Grimkopf's Falor, which was translated from Grim's Tooth Traps, which, by the way, if you're a fan of old source books, is an absolute classic among some of us OG gamers. 1988's Stadenzermesen and 1988's Skatamamaren. They also released a ton of adventures and source books for the games I listed out moments ago, so at one time they were quite the prolific producer of tabletop role-playing game materials. 
but they were so much more than just a tabletop role-playing game company. Target Games had their fingers in a whole lot of other pies in the gaming industry. They published not one, but two miniature war games, Warzone and Chronopia, and several entries in the collectible card game field, and the most notable of those is Doom Trooper. But wait, there's more. Target also had a trade magazine called Syncatus. They published a ton of translated game books from other companies, with the Lone Wolf series being among them. They got into the family board game business using the Casper trademark. They published a number of translated fantasy novels, and for those keeping score at home, they started with a book in the Conan the Barbarian series. They published at least three computer games based on their works, not the least of which was a game based on Drakkar Ok de Moner, and as if all of that wasn't enough, they had their own game store chain called Tradition. So with all of these releases across the gaming spectrum, why isn't Target Games a major player in today's game market? Unfortunately, Target Games went bankrupt in 1999, which meant they entered a reconstruction phase during which they were forced to stop publication of all the products in their line. Paradox Entertainment, which is considered by most game historians to be a daughter company of Target, picked up the intellectual property rights to pretty much everything in the Target catalog, and they maintained those rights when the company was eventually split off to be an independent entity. It has been noted over the years that many of the most popular products in the Target catalog have been licensed to different companies, so if you've got 2000s versions of Drakkar Octomoner or any of the games I've mentioned thus far, you're going to see a different publisher on the credits page. Just know that, in the beginning, it was a Target Games creation. And as we look into the three games I've picked for long-form coverage this week, we'll get into just who some of those publishers are. So I tell you what, why don't we just dive into the first game on the list? As I mentioned earlier, Drakkar Octomoner was released in 1982. Designed by Thomas Bjorklund and Lars Ak Thor, Drakkar Ak Demoner, which is Swedish for Dragons and Demons, or DOD for short, it is, as you might have gathered from the title, a tabletop fantasy role-playing game. Now, if we're being technical here, the first edition of DOD was actually a translation of basic role-playing, which we've covered before here on the show. And if you'll think back to that episode, we also noted that basic role-playing is based on RuneQuest. So DOD has a very healthy chassis to hang on. Bjorklund and Thor blended in a translation of the Magic World booklet to fill in some of the gaps they found when working with basic role-playing. And the combination is what made DOD, well, DOD. If you've played basic role-playing or RuneQuest, or you've listened to our shows covering those two games, the system for this first edition is Pretty much similar. Now, I do need to note that percentile dice were the primary dice used for rolls in DoD, but that wasn't too far off for non-D&D fantasy games at the time, as most designers were looking for ways to differentiate themselves from TSR's Industry Monster. 1984 saw the second edition of DoD hit the market. Larzak Thor, Anders Blixt, Ake Eldberg, Henrik Strandberg, and Marcus Thorl get designer credit for this version, and it was an overhaul of the first edition. The new edition set its sights on fixing translation issues, glitches in the rule set, and adding a couple of new playable races, one of which, the anthropomorphic ducks, came from the game Glorantha. Other than these changes, there weren't really any other major adjustments to the rules or to the game engine itself. 1985, on the other hand, saw a shift in the rules. Now, the third edition of DoD wasn't what got the rule changes. 
For the record, the same group of designers that did second edition got credited for third, so it sort of makes sense they didn't make a lot of rule changes. What changed was this. Much like D&D did, DOD got itself an expert rules expansion called Drakkar Akdamonor Expert. This version added some exotic changes. Well, okay, exotic for DOD anyway. Hit locations made their first appearance in DOD, and the D20 became the de facto skill check die instead of the percentiles, which actually means DOD got on that particular train well before D&D did. Go Sweden! Fourth edition made its debut in 1991, and unlike third edition, it was a major overhaul of the rules. Part of what the design team did was to first incorporate the DOD expert rules into the basic DOD rules, then expand on everything. The end result was a version of DOD that looked very different than anything that had come up before, and gamers ate it up. By the way, if you're wondering how long the release history portion of this deep dive is going to go, We've got a bit, so if you need a beverage or a potty break, now would be the time to pause and go do that. Are you done? Good, let's roll on. The fifth edition, with the same designers from the previous three editions being credited, came out in 1994. The title was adjusted somewhat, as it was now being called Drakkar Octomoner Chronopia. In a major shift from the previous editions, fifth edition had an integrated campaign setting. Needless to say, there were some minor rules adjustments to fit that change, but as I said, the changes were minor. I'll get into the whole campaign setting thing in a moment, but just remember that 5th edition was the first to have its own dedicated one. We also need to note that 5th edition was the final edition to come out from Target Games, as they went under in 1999. Now, as I mentioned earlier in the show, the rights to the game were transferred to Paradox Entertainment. But Paradox was more of an intellectual property company and not a publisher, so they licensed the rights to DoD to Riot Mines shortly after they got them. And Riot Mines got to it immediately, releasing the 6th edition in 2000. Design credit goes to Magnus Malmber and Theodore Berquist, and they decided to almost completely overhaul the system. And when I say overhaul, I mean it. They decided to go away from supporting generic settings in favor of system-specific ones. They went back to the idea of using expert rules, and multiple supplements released after this expanded on that idea. They also added an idea that was very new to DoD. Levels. Okay, well not technically levels. Known as Yerkesvinar, which I was unable to find an English translation for, it proved a method for improving characters that was more in line with what most other games were doing at the time. However, the backlash from dedicated DoD gamers was pretty serious. So Riot Minds did what any smart game company would do and posted an official addendum on their website that basically pulled these rules and explained how to run the new system without them. Also, when 6th edition got reprinted, your Kinsvenir was pretty much nowhere to be found and you certainly won't find it in 7th edition. Speaking of 7th edition, it came out in 2006. Malmber and Burquist were joined on the design team by Dan Algstrand, Anders Jacobsen, and Magnus Setter. While 7th edition wasn't nearly the overhaul as 6th edition was, it did see rule changes that were intended to help the game better fit into the campaign world the designers created. Grudegeskaper, the term for basic character stats, were replaced with Exceptionella Karakstardrag, or Exceptional Abilities. 7th edition also introduced skill specialization. And it was a boxed edition, titled Drakkar Ok Emonor Trudvang, as Trudvang was the campaign setting for DoD. Fast forwarding to 2015, Riot Minds decided to go old school. 
they decided to do a republish of the 1987 print run of third edition, but they did decide to make a few changes. Those changes were new art as well as some minor fixes to jumbled rules and translation errors. When the project was announced, Riot Minds dove in headfirst, announcing an entire line of products based on the older edition, including a number of new campaigns. That project was released in August of 2016. Prior to that release, Riot Minds made another big announcement. Drakkar Octamon or Trudvang was getting an English language release. Called Trudvang Chronicles, it hit the game market with a ton of fanfare and brought new fans to the system in from around the world. Before I continue down this path, I do need to note that in 2015, Cabinet Holdings acquired Paradox Entertainment, which means they got all the properties of Target Games, and that includes all the contracts for the licenses that went out, including the one we're covering here. Just trying to keep all my ducks in a row, they just keep waiting off. Riot Minds wasn't finished republishing old editions of the game. In 2019, they launched a Kickstarter to produce Ruin Matters, which was intended to be an English version of the original DoD game, redesigned and updated to modern tastes. And new art was at the forefront of the new design, with Adrian Smith, Jesper Esjing, Johan Egerkranz, and Alvaro Tapia tapped to produce the art. The Kickstarter was a success and led to another one for the Ruin Masters Bestiary, which dropped in 2021. In August of 2021, Riot Minds released a statement announcing their sale of the IP for DoD to Freie Ligen, which is translated to Free League Publishing. While Riot Minds was giving up the IP, their arrangement did allow them to continue to produce Ruin Masters along with its Calderox setting. However, they will have to remove all DoD specifics from future releases. All right, so we've covered the history of the game. Let's take a moment to talk about the campaign setting thing that I brought up a few minutes ago. When DoD first came out, it didn't have a specific campaign setting. While a large majority of today's gamers probably went into some sort of shock at the mention of that, in 1980, it was pretty much the way things were done. D&D didn't really have a dedicated setting for quite some time, as Gary Gygax had always intended for DMs to create their own. And a number of the other game publishers followed suit by making their games as campaign independent as possible. Now, I did mention that 5th edition DoD was the first with its own specific setting. However, that's not entirely the truth. There was a setting that had been developed prior to that called Ereb Altor. The reason I didn't count it as the first setting is because it didn't come from the mind of a few game designers taking the time to create a single supplement to lay out the setting. Instead, multiple writers creating multiple source books and adventures basically built upon each other's work for a number of years. While the end result was a campaign world, it was pretty jumbled since they weren't all necessarily on the same page. An example of this I saw was medieval feudal states existing side by side with Renaissance-styled nations. So if you want official campaign setting, that ain't it. I mentioned that Chronopia was the campaign setting incorporated into 5th edition, and it was designed to be darker than Arab Altor. What the designers hadn't anticipated was that Arab was way more popular than they thought, and Chronopia was met with some backlash. So Target Games came up with a workaround. They decided that Chronopia and Arab, which was the name of the continent that most of the Arab Altor stuff was based on, existed on the same planet, which was Altor, just on different hemispheres. The thought there was that the players could take the new Chronopium materials, tweak them a bit, and run them as part of their Arab Altor games. And in theory, everybody would be happy. 
I also mentioned the Trudvog setting when I talked about 7th edition. And one of the things to note about it is that it discarded most of the fantasy creatures standard in other games and replaced them with cultures, creatures, and monsters based in Scandinavian folklore. And for those of you not familiar with Scandinavian folklore, it is quite extensive, so there is a virtual shit ton to work with. Drakkar Akdamonor has appeared in multiple other forms of media over its history, so let's take a few moments to check those out. Two tabletop miniature games were released based on DoD. The first, Chronopia Dark Fantasy Battles, was released in 1997. It utilized 25mm minis and provided eight different armies for players to choose from. The second edition was Chronopia War in the Eternal Realm, which came out in 2002 and was published by Excelsior Entertainment. I mentioned during the Target Games breakdown that there were at least three computer games, and I mentioned that because while most game historians can only nail down three games, there are a ton of rumors about others having been released over the years, but in like small batches or only in certain regions or you get the point. We do have info on the DoD game, so let's get into that. Drakkar Ogdemoner Jarnus Brun was released in 1999. Its English title for international sale was Dragonfire, The Well of Souls. So if you played that game, you played a DoD game. And in a bit of irony, the game was developed by Swedish developer Computer House GBGAB, which was pretty much defunct at the time, much like Target Games would be that same year. The game takes place in Arab Altor about six years after the events in the adventure trilogy Den Niglanska Reningen. And it proved to be a rather popular game, so the only reason I can come up with as to why there aren't more releases would be the licensing. That being said, I can neither prove or deny that, so we'll just have to live with the single release. DoD has also shown up in a short film. Drakkar och Demoner Translanderen was released in 2013. You can find it for free on YouTube and it's Swedish with English subtitles. I watched most of it one night and I can tell you the production quality is top notch and the acting's not bad. I get the impression it was intended to be a series of shorts, but I could only find the one. And while I was working my way down the rabbit hole that is YouTube, I also came across several live play videos for DoD. While I didn't get a chance to check any of them out, if you're even remotely interested in the game and or seeing how it runs, check one of them out. Then, you know what, let me know what you think and we can look into taking a closer look at that. Maybe on our own YouTube channel, or maybe I do a campaign build along on it. Either way. Next up is Mutant. As we mentioned in our Target Games segment of the show, Mutant was the second tabletop role-playing game for the company, and it was designed by Janilla Johnson and Michael Peterson with art by Niels Gullickson. Mutant was Target's attempt to broaden their gaming horizons, moving out of the fantasy tabletop world and into the world of mutated humans and animals. The setting is a post-apocalyptic Scandinavia, and it sold very well in that part of Europe. Mutant has been reported over the years to be very similar to the American release Gamma World, and in checking out synopsis of both games, I would agree with that. For the record, the game engine used for this is based on the modified basic role-playing rules the company had utilized for Drakkar Okdemoner. Mutant 2 hit shelves in 1986, and it and the first version of the game continued to roll out throughout the 1980s. Mutant 2 brought to the table a more advanced skill system, advanced rules for combat, hit locations, and a bit more developed of a campaign setting than what Mutant had provided, though it was still not a fully contained setting. 
1989 brought a major change to Mutant. The company had decided it was time for a second edition, and they decided to switch the post-apocalyptic setting to a cyberpunk one, with it being noted on more than one occasion that the film Blade Runner was the inspiration. They also created a bunch of new character options, as one would when altering the setting of a game. It should be noted that this was the first cyberpunk game released in Swedish. While this game was still called Mutant, most fans prefer to call it Nya Mutant or New Mutant. Set in 2089, the world is run by large corporations in gigantic cities, much like Blade Runner. Obviously, the change to the cyberpunk was a major one, but New Mutant also had support for more firearms than previously, as well as the new character class, androids. Fast forward three years and the system was changed yet again. 1992's Mutant RYMD, or Mutant Space in English, changed the setting to space since they flung the game out into the solar system. Funny enough, other than tossing the setting into space, most of the setting remained the same. The major difference is that the corporations put more of their attention and efforts into space exploration and colonization. The game introduces a 10th planet, Nero, and an evil supernatural force to be dealt with. That being said, this version would not have a very long shelf life. Mutant Chronicles would be released a year later, and it was a combination of Mutant RYMD and Cult, which we'll discuss in a few minutes. One shift away from the Cult influence on the game is that all religious elements were removed for Mutant Chronicles. Mutant Chronicles was a first for Target Games. It was simultaneously released both in Sweden and in the U.S., and was also a tabletop role-playing game, collectible miniature game called Warzone, and a board game called Siege of the Citadel. And since I mentioned it, the English translation for Mutant Chronicles was handled by Heartbreaker Hobbies and Games. Things chugged along until Target went under in 1999. Jarn or the Iron Ring in English, picked up the rights to Mutant and immediately began work on their own version of the game. Mutant, Undergangen's Arvdger, came out in 2002. Now, this would be a point to note that all of the versions of Mutant to this point didn't really have fleshed out worlds for campaigning, since that was the domain of the individual GMs. For the record, that made Mutant pretty similar to most of the tabletop role-playing games that came out during the 1980s. The new version of Mutant changed this. The idea was a fledgling Scandinavian civilization rising from the ruins, called Pyrensemfundent, and this point was greatly expanded upon with the supplement Undergangen's Arvtagere, which was a fully formed campaign. For the record, the English translation is Heirs to the Apocalypse. Pyrensemfundent is an interesting civilization, as it combines elements from the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries insofar as Swedish culture, and mixes in mutated monsters and radiation zones that are hazardous to all. We should also note, since I seem to like to do this, that this game was also based on those basic role-playing bones the previous games have been built on, but it is not compatible with them. Sorry about that. This new line of Mutant was supported with a number of supplements through 2008, and unlike the previous edition, this one did not get an English translation, or at least not an official one anyway. Swedish gamers loved this version of the game so much that the next company to get the rights, Free League, would reissue this rulebook in 2019. Speaking of Free League, or Freya Ligen in Swedish, they got the license for Mutant from Paradox Entertainment and released their new version of the game in 2014. 
This one called Mutant R Null goes back to the 1984 version of the game for style, but it adds a brand new setting. The game itself is set several hundred years before the start of the original, and in that setting, the apocalypse is still recent and fresh in the minds of all. Unlike the previous version, Free League has published the core book and a number of supplements in multiple languages, including English. The English title for the curious out there is Mutant Year Zero, and it came out in December of 2014. We've got one more mutant release to cover today, and that's the setting update that was developed thanks to a highly successful 2020 Kickstarter. Set a generation after Undenganen's Arvatakare from the 2002 release, Mutant Hindenburg basically goes back and tries to do a retrofit all of the past apocalyptic settings from previous releases and reconcile them into a single fictional history. It's a tall task, but one that a majority of reviewers agreed they succeeded with. And keeping in the same vein as pretty much all of the releases from Free League, Hindenburg uses a modified version of the Mutant Year Zero game engine. I don't have any reviews for Mutant, at least not in English, so let's move on to the third and final game we're covering this week. Cult, which is Swedish for cult and typically written in all caps, K-U-L-T, is a contemporary horror tabletop role-playing game. Developed by Janilla Johnson and Michael Peterson with Nils Gullickson handling the art, it was first published by Target Games in 1991. Cult was first translated and published in English by Metropolis Limited in 1993. At some point after the English translation of the first edition, a second edition of Cult was released, but finding information online about it has proven to be exceptionally difficult. What I can say is that in 1995, 7M Circle translated this version to French. The third edition of Cult came out in 2001, and Paradox Entertainment had handed the license to 7M Circle to handle its release. Again, there's not a lot of information out there about this edition, but it sold enough copies to keep the brand alive, and the game's continued popularity led to the inevitable fourth edition. The folks responsible for that edition are the current license holders, Helmgast. Peter Nalo and Robin Legenberg get the designer credit for this version, and the title was adjusted to Cult, Divinity Lost. Fourth edition moves the setting from the 1990s, which was the current setting used in the previous three editions, to the 2010s, which was current at the time of the new release. I mentioned new designers, which is relevant because Cult got a complete makeover. New rules, which were based on Powered by the Apocalypse. It also got new art and a new layout. This version of the game has sold like gangbusters and has also been well-reviewed. It won Ennies for Best Writing and Best Cover in 2019 and has also been nominated for Best Interior Art. With the overall lack of historical record to utilize for this entry, I'm going to spend a little more time laying out the game itself, so let's get into it. As you no doubt gathered from the history I laid out, the backdrop for Cult is modern day with the action located in the larger cities. And Cult uses actual large cities, so there were no cities created for this game. The players take on the roles of contemporary protagonists, and they range from private investigators to vigilantes with pretty much anything else you can think of in between. The twist, though, is the fact that all of this is an illusion held together by a monotheistic belief. Problem is, that belief is starting to come apart and a darker side is being revealed. One where nightmare creatures lurk. It, it's called reality in the game, and it's not a pretty picture. 
in the history of the game. The illusion was created by the Demiurge to hold humanity prisoner and prevent mankind from ever regaining the divinity it had in history. However, the Demiurge has disappeared and there are other forces fighting over control of the illusion, which explains why it's cracking up. And players are starting to see the cracks because these various forces have competing philosophies. Some want to keep the illusion in place as it is, while others want to lift it completely, which would no doubt start a war that would lead to the apocalypse. Yeah, this game is pretty heavy stuff. So a lot of the notions of this background are taken from Gnosticism, while the Tree of Life, the Sephiro, and the Jiploth uh, provide inspiration for the cosmology of cult. The Archons and Death Angels in the game each represent a value group or action, and that was also intentional. The name of the game comes from the fact that the Archons and Death Angels have their little cults, which they use to promote their values and do their bidding. Cult relies on the idea that there are multiple realities that might show up once the illusion breaks. Metropolis, which is the original city that links with all great cities. Inferno, which is, as you no doubt guessed, the hell analog. Purgatories, pretty much the same. The Underworld, that really doesn't need any explaining. And Limbo, which is the dream world. I tell you what, we're, we've covered the setting a bit. How about we get into the system? First edition cult was based on a skill-based system with D20 rolls, which was rather similar to Chaosium's basic role-playing game, which we'll note has been the framework for each of the games we've covered today. First edition also utilized the concept of point-based characters. Now, unlike the D20 system we know and maybe love today, this system is a low-roll system, so ones are really good and 20s are really bad. Normal characters in Cult typically have skill ranges from 3 to 30, and skill checks require you to roll equal to or less than your skill level. 4th edition Cult uses Powered by the Apocalypse, as I mentioned a moment ago. It uses D10s. You roll 2D10, add modifications if any, and you need a 10 to avoid failure and a 15 or better for complete success. 4th edition is also built for the GM to build the campaign specifically around the PCs in order to create maximum horror. There's a whole mental balance element to cult, but I gotta tell you, the easiest way for me to try to explain it is that it's similar in many ways to Sanity from Cthulhu. So just think of that when you think of mental balance. Now I'd go into it further, but just reading it kind of made my head spin. And since I've had a hell of a time getting through the show to this point, I think I'll leave that for you to read when you pick up a copy of the game. Now, as much as we've covered today already, I would be derelict in my duty if I didn't get into some of the controversies Cult has caused over the years. In the 1990s, Cult found itself in the middle of a D&D-style satanic panic as the game was sold primarily in toy stores when it came out. Now, this wasn't unusual in Sweden. Most role-playing games were sold in toy stores rather than bookstores or game shops. So when the media and politicians needed a target, guess who? Cult was it. Cult's core rules were even quoted in a motion in the Swedish parliament. The goal was to stop taxpayer funding of youth groups who were either actively role-playing or open to it. This came on the heels of the Bajuv murder, which was the murder of a 15-year-old in the town of Bajuv by his 16- and 17-year-old friends. The legal motion claimed that the murderers had been influenced by Cult. Much like in the U.S., Cult got its own anti-game book, D.D. Ornstead and Bjorn Sjönstedt wrote De Overengivna's Arme, or Army of the Abandoned in English. Basically, it's their attempt to warn folks off of the tabletop role-playing hobby as a whole, and cult in particular. The title was intentional. 
It's a reference to children who are supposedly ignored by their parents and are therefore susceptible to being radicalized by tabletop role-playing games. I'm sorry, if it was that easy, role-players would rule the world. Just saying. Not to mention the fact their asses would show up on time for game night every night. Again, I'm just saying. The critics also tried to tie cult to the suicide of a 16-year-old Swedish boy in November of 1996, as well as the disappearance of Andreas Hammer on July 1st, 1994. Hammer had supposedly been playing cult the week before his disappearance, and as of this recording, Hammer is still missing. As the millennium turned, the fervor seems to have subsided, and cult, much like D&D before it, weathered the storm. I've got one more thing to do here, and it's something I haven't done the entire show. A review. Jeff Koki handled the review for Pyramid Magazine in 1993, stating, quote, All in all, Cult is a very good system and background for role players who are mature enough to delve into truly dark role playing. Even for those players who dislike being immersed in depressing, hopeless worlds, the background has enough tidbits of bleak imagery and morsels of horrific scenery that it's worth the cover price just to browse through the metropolis. End quote. And I think we'll wrap today's tour on that note. Before I finish up, I wanted once again to apologize for my butchery of the Swedish language. I can tell you it took me three times longer than it usually would to record this episode. And that's because I kept going back to get, try to get it as close to perfect as I could. But yeah, no, that wasn't happening. Again, I apologize for that. And I hope it didn't take away from your enjoyment of the show. Next week, we'll cover the play-by-mail game, Hyborian War. Why back to play-by-mail? Check out the show and you'll see. In the meanwhile, please check out our other fine program, Bad GM's Campaign Build Along. We are building an entire campaign for the Fallout role-playing game, and this week we keep chugging along on our group's retribution mission. There's more twists to come, so check it out. Bad GM's Campaign Build Along is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgmproductions.net. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all your license-free, royalty-free music needs. Role Playing History is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash Bad GM Prod, on Twitter at Bad GMP, YouTube and Tumblr, Bad GM Productions. You can email us, badgmproductions at gmail.com, and online it's badgmproductions.net. Next week, we go to war. Yeah, no, we, we check out Hyborian War. So, I mean, I'm not completely in the wrong there. Just maybe a little overenthusiastic. Anyway, that's next week. Until then, I'm Wayne Davis and your role-playing history.